Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Dr. Norman Borlaug, 1970 Nobel Peace Prize winner and founder of the International Wheat and Maize Institute, Dr. Robert Chandler Jr., founding director emeritus of the International Rice Research Institute, and Dr. Niall Brady, international development consultant for the World Bank and United Nations, discuss Africa's agriculture crisis. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and don't forget to subscribe to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Bob and Niall, how do you look at the world food situation, and more specifically, especially the big problem of Africa, for the next two or three decades? Do you want to answer that, or you well, want me to? Why don't you? Well, I'll, I'll say my word, then you can say some more. Please. In my opinion, as far as Africa is concerned, it's a very serious situation. The main, there are many reasons for that, which we'll discuss as we go along. But the fact is that the per capita production of food in Africa reached its peak way back in 1964, and it's been going downhill per capita, mind you, not total. And they have many, many needs. Uh, one is infrastructure, schools, roads. You can't market a lot of your materials, that food materials, because you can be 200 miles away from a sack of grain, you can't get at it. And <clears throat> the other thing is that so many countries, only 10 to 15 percent of the people read and write, the rest can't. And it's very difficult to get programs going in that type of situation. They also have, just one more thing, they also have uh, soils that are not as productive. They don't have the, law, the broad delta soils that you have over in, in India, for example, and much of Asia. And so to say that you can produce just as much rice in Africa as you can in Asia is not quite right. Well, let me just make one, one comment, uh, somewhat more general nature. We have really two perceptions of, of the world's food situation. One perception is that which we have in the United States and Europe. The average citizen might tell you that our food problem is what do we do with the food? We've got so much food, we can't eat it, and we're having to give it away and sell it. That's the, the, the U.S. perception mm. of that mm. in, in Europe. But there's nowhere else that that is the perception, even where they have been much more successful, Bob, in Asia and Latin America. You still are, have a situation where you've got every year 90 million more people to feed wow. than you had the previous year. Sure. And we must uh, talk about population eventually. It's got, it's got right. to come into in yeah. the picture. But uh, in, in, in the next, all the projections I have seen, in the next 20 to 30, 40 years, that's, you're all going to have numbers like that that have to be <coughs> met. And uh, the, the, the situation is most critical in Africa. And that's what we ought to spend some time on. But it's a worldwide problem. Yeah. It's a worldwide problem. What you're saying, Niall, really is, first of all, we've got two different problems when we talk about food. One is to produce enough of the right kinds of food. <clears throat> and the second one is to distribute it equitably. And there we run into the problem of power, poverty and lack of purchasing power. Yeah. At two levels in the African and many developing nations <clears throat> and other parts of the world, one, the government doesn't have foreign exchange to import. Or even if it did, it couldn't distribute it to their populations because they're mostly rural uh, with no infrastructure of roads and railroads, as you've pointed out, Bob. And so how would you get it to the people? So we've got to start <clears throat> on the land since 80, 85% of those people in Africa are rural 
and yeah. subsistence <clears throat> agriculture to get the wheels of production going to alleviate the poverty, to generate some purchasing power at the family level so that they have something to sell to help the, solve the local food problems in the urban areas. And at the same time to buy manufactured goods. The way it is now, it's all stuck, dead center. Mm. No the, question about it. And, and the developing agencies uh, that are concerned <clears throat> with international development, many of them <clears throat> no longer have an agriculture department. That's right. They, they look upon food as uh, uh, last year or mm. 20 years ago. That was our problem. Now <clears throat> we have other problems that, that we have to look at. But that's I just think there is not a perception on the part of the public, and that's certainly true here in the United States, of, of the very critical importance of food supply I, everywhere, not, not just in Africa, but I, particularly in Africa. I think we have a tremendous educational problem within our own country, the USA. We are an urban population by and large, 2% of the people on the land that produce this great quantity of food beyond our own needs, <clears throat> the diversity of foods we've never seen, the quality of foods we've never seen like that. It's all taken for granted. And you can talk to the man in the streets, even in modest-sized cities, and they haven't the vaguest idea about agriculture and food. It's my impression that people lose their roots to the soil always by the second generation, and most of them, the sons and daughters of the first generation that leaves the land can't relate to the problems of agriculture. It looks so easy. And I think uh, that uh, uh, one-liner that uh, President Eisenhower uh, talking about farming sort of tells the story when he says, farming looks so easy when you're plow is a pencil and you're a thousand miles from the cornfield. It's what's happened to us. No, that's right. And how do we go back to give the perception of the importance of this? Of course, this is, this is important because well, a lot of the money comes from the USA, should come from them. For example, if you were president of the World Bank today, where would you put your money in Africa? What would you concentrate on as far as providing financial help where you have both country poverty and individual poverty. Oh, uh, for me to open the Nile you fill in, uh, I would say that rural education has to have a high priority. Clear back to primary and, yeah. and high school, yeah. secondary school. And especially for girls. Yes, yeah, but for both. Yeah. Uh, because the, the situation is terrible as it exists now. The youth from the rural areas, which constitutes more than 80% in most countries, can never qualify for, or very rarely, for entrance to the universities. The result is that those who study agricultural sciences or agricultural production, agronomy, call it what you will, mm. uh, are there by, not by first choice very often, second or third or fourth. They wanted to go into medicine, or into law or economics. Mm -hmm. They didn't make it there because the quantum, quant uh, the places were filled, so they came to agriculture. So they get a theoretical training, uh, which uh, they don't know how to apply. Mm -hmm. And this gives a bad name to <clears throat> agricultural science also. So it's a vicious circle. How do, we, how do we change this? 
how do we get this back on track? And I feel, as you've implied, Niall, now you fix it out and get it in line. But I think that something's gone wrong in the foreign assistance programs, not only of the USA, but of Western European countries. I think the Canadians are closer to being on target than any of the others. Why is it so? <laughs> I don't want to get in, involved in any comparison with the different agencies, but I, I, I no, this 100% is, this is beyond with the, the agencies. Notion, with the notion that, uh, that uh, human resource development has to come right at the top of the list of things that need to be done. And there are some things that outsiders can do for them. But quite frankly, uh, most of the, you've got to start with what they're willing to do for themselves. <clears throat> and I think if, if you ask me the question of what would be the first thing I would do, even though I'm, I'm very strongly science-oriented and uh, education-oriented, first thing I would do would to see to it that the policies of the government mm. made it profitable for the farmers to accept the new technologies, to want to learn, and to want their kids to go to school because that's what they saw as being helpful to them and to their families. Most policies in governments and developing countries, and particularly in Africa, are determined by what it takes to satisfy the people in the capital city. Sure. Mm -hmm. That's where the most come from. Egypt tried to <clears throat> increase, to, to cut down the subsidy on uh, bread so that the price of wheat could go <clears throat> high enough to where their farmers could afford to grow it. And there's a strike. There was a mass uh, demonstration. They had to pull it back. You remember the sure. same thing went on in Poland several Absolutely. times before the, the real crisis came. So policies are set up not to encourage food production. They do not encourage food production. And if those policies aren't changed, as they were in Africa, in Asia, as you sure. guys know, the government saw, here are some new technologies, here are some wheats and rices. Mm that'll really respond to management. Yeah. Let's put some policies in that'll make it possible for the farmer to use fertilizer, to use irrigation, and make money. Do you even have fertilizer available? Because before that, no one wanted to invest in right. imports right. or production. But you had governments that were willing to say, we're going to make our, have our policies such that it will encourage the farmers to adopt and use yeah. the technologies Which, that science is... Uh, I, know you, I think you realize, too, that it was a, there was a lot of persuasion that had to take place before that took place. You know that. You talked to government leaders. I talked to government leaders. We all did. Yes. And until we got them convinced that there was a real, a real uh, opportunity here, they didn't, they didn't act. They weren't acting. That's why my philosophy, Bob, was always that to give support to the grassroots. Yeah putting on a lot of demonstrations right. about how that package of technology could produce two or three or four times as much yield as the traditional way. Mm -hmm. And when this had been done in many thousands of plots of sufficient size so the farmer could uh, uh, realize what it meant to his modest income, then suddenly you had thousands of supporters from the grassroots. Then you were in a position, Bob Nile, mm. to talk eyeball to eyeball, right. if you want to put it crudely, to the policy makers. <clears throat> and then they heard you. Had you said the same things before you had demonstrated what the potential of right. that technology was, you might have been asked to leave the country. 
but when, when we developed IRA and had it in India, it was the farmer who was assisting, not the extension agent, not the director of agriculture. They were scared to feel it might go wrong, but the well, farmer said, give us that and give us something better and we'll take it. When you and show it, it to them, the when you show it to them the world over, those yeah. farmers, like F.F. Uh, F. Hill used to say, they may be illiterate, but they can figure. Yeah, and right, they right, can right. figure it's, yeah, right, if right. it's going to improve their standard so of living. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, the, the policies, I think, have to be relooked because <clears throat> they're basically urban oriented. What can we do to keep, hold the price down? And as a result, cheap. cheap food. And the only way you can provide that cheap food is have somebody give it to them. Because sure. the farmers can't all afford to grow <clears throat> themselves. That, that and the, and the political leaders have to recognize that the cheap food is to keep the minority in the urban centers, mostly of the capital city, quiet. And that's to kill permanently any development in agriculture or rural development in the broadest context. And you're right, Nile, that has to be changed. There's a second, second thing that I think is a broad general principle. You mentioned education, and I, I agree with that 100%. But I did throw in the word especially girls because if there's ever if there's any continent in the world where women in agriculture play a major role in <clears throat> Africa we frequently talk about farmers and we say he yeah. but in Africa yes, you're going to be wrong half the time <clears throat> at least more because yeah. because the, the husband is apt to be off in the mine <clears throat> someplace or driving a truck or something like that and it's the it's the it's the woman and children Right. that are handling the, 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 the food production. And there is no extension program oh. aimed specifically at reaching in and touching those people. Uh, it's not a, their custom doesn't uh, encourage male right. uh, uh, extension workers to go out and start talking to women. And so that's, that's the situation. <coughs> it, it's education, it's sure, training. Another thing we, we must, this is a good point to introduce this population thing because if you can get women educated, that's going to broaden their vision and cut down on, on, the, on the fertility rate. Yeah. That's the big thing. To me, the biggest, the biggest problem facing mankind in the future is overpopulation. Well, I don't think there's any question, but that's going to happen. Well, it's got to be brought into balance. We'll yeah. have more social, got, political strife. After all, the amount of land you have in the world is a finite thing. There's no, no change in that, except a little delta coming out here and there. And yet the people cannot go on forever. Can you imagine? Nigeria, for example, with 550 million people, and that's what the World Bank says they're going to have before they stabilize the population. Can you yeah. imagine Bangladesh now with 120 million going to have 325 million? You can't million. wait for this. We've got a tremendous educational problem on our hands. Of course it is. And, and you've got to start, start at the top. There's got to be a national will, in my opinion, before you can... But the, for the political leader to to be courageous enough to do this, he's got to start with an educational base clear down in rural countryside, mm. through primary schools, secondary, through radio, transistor pro programs. The television mostly isn't in rural Africa, this state, but the little radios are. Yeah, right. And they can be reached. The third thing it seemed like to me needs to be looked at and know more about this than I do because you saw it in the uh, in, in the uh, Asia scene. In addition to policies, willingness to make it possible for the profit, the farmer to profit from the technologies, 
you did have the availability of the, of the technologies. Sure. In yep. addition to the sea, oh, yeah. you, you had a system that was providing water and providing fertilizer. So if you had seed, water, and fertilizer, you're a long ways down the track of, of succeeding. Africa is, <clears throat> is devoid, much less blessed with water. Yeah. Yes. Not only from the standpoint of the natural rainfall, but from the standpoint of, of rivers that could be dammed up and then used well, for irrigation. And then secondly, Africa is lacking an effective system of supplying to their farmers chemical fertilizer. There you are. That can, that yeah, that's the number one problem in Africa. If we're going to uh, create a sedentary, a stable agriculture, uh, in those areas of Central Africa, for example, we've got to provide fertilizer. The only tool that little farmer has is a hoe and a machete. That's right. And uh, when the soil fertility wears out after three years, he has no choice. He has to move on to another piece of land and chop down some more vegetation, brushy or woody, destroy the habitat. And uh, this goes on and on and on. And if we could, and Africa has some advantages that Asia doesn't have now or didn't even have to the same extent in the 60s. And that is that there is more land. I'm speaking now about Central Africa. Yeah. It's not under cultivation. Part of it's savanna and well-watered savanna. But it's handicapped not only by the infrastructure or lack of it, but by diseases. Uh, by malaria, when you get into the better rain-fed areas, by trypanosomiasis, yeah. the tese fly, naganya, sleeping sickness, yeah. all of these things that complicate it. Public health in general <coughs> is way behind what it was in, in Asia. Well, I do want you mentioned that Asia doesn't have the uh, Africa doesn't have the water resources, but they have not made use of the water resources they have. You take right. the, the the Niger River which originates up in an area with uh, several hundred inches of, of rain a year, flows 2,600 <laughs> miles to the sea. Sure. And very little of that is used to, to grow crops, I mean, to, for real good irrigation systems. I saw the Japanese come into a section in Nigeria and grow six metric tons per hectare of rice without any trouble those soils when the folks around there were getting seven or 800 kilograms per sure. hectare. Sure. Showing what there, could be done, the potential is there there's, uh, for, for parts of it. Now, I'm sure it's in like Asia, but there, still. There's one part, both Bob and you, Niall, I think that's there in Africa, and that's the, the premise on which our extension program under the Sasakawa African Association is functioning. When uh, uh, we were encouraged to establish this program, my perception at that time was that we had to do research. But after we, President Carter and Mr. Sasakawa and, and I, with the, Dr. Swindale from ICRASAT, uh, visited five countries in early 66, we saw that there was quite a bit of useful information and some improved varieties lying around unused on the experiment stations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that development had been with cooperation with one or another of the international institutes. Uh, could be in the case of mace with yeah. the, the Mexican one, or rice or sorghum, yeah, yeah, yeah. with those in, well, in, in IITA also had a and, rice program. Uh, yeah. But it wasn't being and used. Water. 
so that rather than going in duplicate research, uh, duplicate research, we decided, all right, let's get all of the information together and go out and demonstrate what it can do in, uh, in that vast broad belt of Central Africa, on maize especially, corn. There's no problem in doubling, tripling, and sometimes quadrupling yield compared to the traditional. The problem is, you point out, how do we get the fertilizer? And if you got the fertilizer, if you don't change the credits and the pricing, they pay the farmer in over-evaluated currency, they'll tell you it's the international rate. But if you really explore what it is, it's, again, half like it was in Asia back in the 60s. That's right. But the policies are set up in such a way that it doesn't pay the farmer to use your technology. A lot of, a lot of people say, oh, the, those Africans are not as well, uh, they're not as bright as the Asians who oh. won't do this. But many of the Asians that adopted the, that technology couldn't read and write. No. <clears throat> and just like the Africans, but the Africans find this works fine at the experiment station. But when I go out and I buy the fertilizer and I do the work that's necessary to, to make, make this crop grow, I don't get enough money returned on the produce I sell, that's usually right. to a government-operated uh, purchasing agent. I don't get enough to pay the fertilizer. And then then uh, there are so many other little things that contribute to the inefficient use of fertilizer. The government importing agencies doesn't get the fertilizer into the country and distribute it to the farm level on time. Yeah. You put the fertilizer on too late and you get one-third or one-fourth of the response that you would get yeah. if it were put on at the right time. Isn't that right? Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. all going on. Yeah. And then there's complete chaos in the fertilizer market. In, in Ghana, uh, two years ago, I went into one of the markets in, in uh, the main corn producing area. And here, sacks dumped all over. Seven different kinds of fertilizer. Uh, some of them weren't even labeled as to the N, P, or K. And I asked the merchant selling this, How, what do you recommend for the corn that's being planted? Which fertilizer and how much, how many sacks do didn't have the vaguest idea. He didn't even know what it was himself. <clears throat> it was fertilizer. Yeah. And part of it was fertilizer that was given and gift by foreign aid programs. Most of those had stamped on it what it was, but some didn't even yeah. have that. Yeah. Yeah. No wonder we got chaos. That's, that's the difference. One big difference between the developed, less and less developed countries. The developed countries, the commercial aid concerned that sells the product, know what to do with it, and nobody's following. A lot of people have done things through. The seed companies and the fertilizer companies that have helped out trips. But you see, in Africa, there again, we have the problem that so many of the African countries are very small, even though now there's a general idea the private sector will take over the but it's not a big enough volume very often in an individual mm -hmm. country. Like take the case of Ghana, Togo, and Benin, the three small countries. Yeah. Uh, one of the big fertilizer companies isn't going in there. Neither will the hybrid corn companies mm -hmm. go in there. So that uh, we've got a lot of differences. It isn't as simple as private sector. But it does simply mean that, that uh, mm -hmm. attempts to try to get these countries to work together 
as they did in the case of uh, onchocerciasis, yes. river sickness, river blindness. They saw they had to work together. And so they permitted planes from one country to fly over others and use, in that particular case, uh, the, the insecticides to take care of the, of the agent that was transmitting the disease. Now they've got other more effective means of handling it. But they decided to work together. And when it comes to when it comes to fertilizer, when it comes to your <clears throat> irrigation, you simply got to get countries to sure. work together. And, and and it seemed like to me that the donor agencies and I, I'm World Bank could help say, look, we'll work with you. We'll provide you some resources, provided you come up with a game plan that makes it possible for us to work with this region rather that's, than just each individual. You're right. That, that's important. But I think also another thing within the countries is this tribal antagonism. That I, I don't know what we as farmers can do about that. But you know, one themselves. of the real problems is that they're fighting among themselves. Yes. And look what's happened in Liberia. Of course. Uh, recently. <clears throat> look what's happening in Somalia. Ethiopia. Uh, Ethiopia. It's just terrible. And uh, even way back in Chad in the old days, I remember that they sent in a, an extension agent in there who happened to be from a different tribe, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't listen to it. And they said, you could have somebody of our own tribe in here, and we won't pay any attention to what he has to say. And that's unfortunate, of course. Of course. It is, it is true, but it does. Education will change that, I hope, with time. But there's really also a, a principle that I think is coming up more and more. They, some of my social science friends uh, keep talking about participatory involvement of mm -hmm. the farmers. And at first I kind of thought that was uh, uh, something that the, that, uh, <coughs> the uh, soft sciences want to work with, this is fine. But mm -hmm. when I've seen what participatory, uh, participatory involvement of farmers in the Integrated Pest Management Program in Indonesia and how, how it has just revolutionized the uh, the growing of rice mm -hmm. and saved the government of Indonesia $130 million a year in pesticide mm -hmm. subsidies that they no longer give and the production of rice mm -hmm. uh, c continues to go up. But it does it does mean that uh, that some way there's got to be greater involvement down at the grassroots level in sure. determining what kind of program uh, <clears throat> sure. uh, is going to pay off. It's, it's, it's like the, the health uh, advisor who went to the chief yes. and said, uh, your women are having to work too hard. And as a result, you have the highest death rate of your boy children mm -hmm. of any of the tribes. Now, if you give my health workers bicycles that they can use to go around and help these women, instead of the women having to trudge to them, mm. your, baby, your boy babies will live. Sure. So what they did was to say, sure. what, what, what is important to this person? What's important to this tribe? Because mm. the boy, the male babies were more important than sure. anything else. And so they brought a kind of health program going with <clears> his <throat> full support. There are some of these cooperative things that you mentioned earlier, Niall, beyond the one on the river blindness yes. that are catching on. For example, the uh, uh, the one on the cassava mealybug. That's a fantastic. The, that's a fantastic thing, and USAID was involved in bringing about this biological control. Quickly tell us what what what, what was that? This was a pest that was never known to have been the mealybug. Importance in cassava and its native home in the Americas. Cassava. Uh, 
was transferred early on in colonial times, way back in the 1500s, 1600s into Africa. A root crop. And huge. it's a root crop. It's the main yeah. source of carbohydrates in many places. Well, and somehow, some, yes, from where ta tapioca comes, yeah. which used to be a dessert for me up in the north of the U.S. when I was a kid. I had no idea where it came from. But anyway, uh, this... Uh, insect was inadvertently somewhat introduced and it just spread like wildfire in Africa, causing tremendous destruction, reduction in yield and production. And they looked for ways to control it. Of course, it could have been done by insecticides, but at tremendous cost, no infrastructure. And the entomologist went down to the source of uh, the home of cassava in South America, and I think in Paraguay, they brought in several to test. In uh, Benin, the entomologist from Colombia, two Rich. of these international centers. Yes, from Ciat and ITA in Western Africa. And they took those in, established a center where they can rear them in big quantities and drop them from airplanes, and this has been brought under control. No chemicals are used. It's the same sort of wonderful thing that last year's recipient for the World Food Prize, mm -hmm. Nippling and Bushland, did on the screwworm that attacks livestock, so, and first in so. the U.S. and yeah. Mexico, and it's been cleaned out there, and uh, went into Algeria, where the screwworm was introduced on sheep someplace from the Americas three or four years ago, and they've eradicated it there. These are cooperative things that are of tremendous benefit, aren't they? Absolutely, and, and, but it does bring out a principle, I think, here. And that is, uh, each of those small African countries can't have the research infrastructure to find right. out what it takes to control mm -hmm. the sure. sector of this disease, to find out what it takes to give you some plants that'll tolerate acid soils. Mm -hmm. And so you, you, you do have to turn to regional or international uh, means of, of using science to help solve sure. some of their problems. In Africa, one of the things that I observed was that the, many of these experiment stations, although they're there and they have some people with master's degrees and PhDs, but they don't have any money to no. operate on. It's terrible. And if they try to keep five or ten stations when they don't have the resources for one, yeah, they, they just dilute it that much. That's right. right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Very, very sad. Oh, say, okay, then what we have is a lot of potential, but how to bring it to reality to solve human problems is another matter. And it's going to take a concentrated effort by all of the nations with some assistance from the uh, international organizations and donor agencies. But the will has to be supplied by the individual countries. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, it's been great having this conversation among us, and I hope that we can meet again and talk some other time. This is, I think our time is running out for this particular session, yeah. but it's great to be together with people who have common interests and common experiences and backgrounds. Yes, indeed. Yeah, that's great. And the one thing that Africa needs immediately, if it were possible, is a Pan-American School of Agriculture, like Samarano that has a combination of unusually good academic training mm -hmm. with a good part of hands-on training mm -hmm. so that they come out with a balanced way of knowing how to apply the new technology. 
and that's missing in Africa. Yeah. Oh, it certainly is. Yeah. The one thing I'm glad, I put pleased with is that for once uh, I agree with both you guys. I don't I haven't had a fight with either one of you. Been no, for thirty minutes. None of the three of us <laughs> have had any disagreement. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.